You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. In November of 2022, I had the pleasure of hosting Fred Gatala, the Director for Carbon and Sustainability for Advanced Biofuels Canada, the National Industry Association established to promote the production and use of advanced biofuels in Canada. Fred leads ABC's work to establish biofuel carbon value, life cycle analyses and regulations, and expanding advanced biofuel use into the aviation and marine sectors, which is so critical. Fred led the webinar and he talked about parsing the clean fuels regulation. So this is the Canadian version of the low carbon fuel standard or clean fuel program. And he led the webinar with a presentation, giving an overview of the standards and, and the, the landscape and the fuels landscape out there, which I thought was incredibly thorough and insightful. I'll share just a bit of his presentation first. Then we had an engaging discussion where we covered audience questions as well as my own, of course. I hope you enjoy this discussion uh, with Fred Gatala. I'm Fred Gatala, Advanced Biofuels Canada. The presentation is Parsing the Clean Fuel Regulations. Um, parsing means to break something into its constituent parts and then start to analyze it. So the one thing about the CFR is it's a pretty big regulation. I'm coming at this from a low carbon intensity fuel perspective. Um, so the CFR establishes a vastly improved credit market platform compared to the renewable fuel regulation. If I had to say the key thing that the CFR will do, it will establish a credit, a compliance credit trading market that will ascribe values to the different compliance options. So because we have provincial policies in Canada, some of them with compliance credit markets, some of them with publicly visible markets, how that interacts with the CFR is going to change the economics of which fuels are used where. Um, and it will actually divide out that compliance value, just like you get a RIN LCFS stack in, um, in the US and California, we'll have the same thing in, in Canada. It creates a platform for post-2030 tightening. So this regulation is the going to be in place for assumed decades. Um, it has the ability to ratchet up the strength of the carbon intensity reduction target. So during the reg development process, part of the refrain from government was, let's get the reg out. We can make adjustments as we move forward. We can tighten it as we move forward. So this is the platform for that. It creates credible sustainability criteria for biofuels feedstocks. So new renewable fuel policy that includes agriculture and forestry products um, always includes some type of sustainability or in the case of the clean fuel regulations, land use and biodiversity criteria. They are strict. They are slightly different than what's in place in other jurisdictions. And I think that lends them a lot of credibility for ensuring that the, the biomass used in the CFR um, complies with significant requirements. It incents the refining sector to uptake advanced biofuels and EVs and hydrogen and renewable natural gas. So it has a strong signal for obligated parties to generate their own compliance. Areas for improvement. 
is that the broad inclusion of upstream reductions can dilute the non-fossil clean fuel signal. So because Canada has a number of regulations that are being developed that focus on the oil and gas supply chain emissions, it's likely that things or activities or emission reductions generated in the CFR may also be counted in other policies. So that ultimately dilutes the signal for low carbon intensity fuels like renewable diesel, biodiesel, fuel ethanol, et cetera, et cetera. The stringency of the CFR is likely delayed, which means that it doesn't really start to bite until 2026. So like many other carbon reduction policies, likely starting with a bit of a long credit compliance market rather than a tight one. It provides credits for non-fuel aspects of a refinery's production. So compliance category one that I'll get into um, will provide credits for emission reductions that attach to non-fuel products. And reporting. Uh, first real data coming out of the system is 2025. So the market will need to figure out what the supply and demand of credits versus debits will be. So that's the highlight, um, the overall surveying of the elephant or the positives and the rooms for improvement. Now I'll get into the bit of um, ABFC. So our mission is to promote the production and use of advanced biofuels in Canada. We cooperate with stakeholders, work with governments, all to expand market access and use um, of those fuels in Canada. The key parts about the clean fuel regulations are um, that it's, it's active. Um, the first, we're in a pre-compliance period, but the first compliance period starts July 1st, 2023, and goes to the end of that year. Compliance credits can now be created because we're after June 21st, which, when, which is when the regulations were uh, published. And so the early compliance credit period goes from that date until the day before July 1st, which is June 30th, for creating early compliance credits. The obligated parties to the regulation are fossil fuel producers and fossil fuel importers. These are called primary suppliers in the vernacular of the clean fuel regulations. So compliance credits for low carbon intensity fuels are created upon production in Canada or import to Canada with the requirement that if the fuels are later exported, that they are removed from the compliance reports of primary suppliers. Marine fuels, low carbon marine fuels are eligible if they are uh, produced in Canada, imported into Canada and put onto a ship in Canada, regardless of destination. SAF fuels are eligible with the same approach that I outlined for, for marine fuels. It includes a volumetric requirement that takes the place of the renewable fuel regulations that will be rescinded at the end of this year. So that's the five in gasoline and the 2% in diesel. They've expanded what is includable in the diesel component of the volumetric requirement to include other fuels like SAF. The clean fuel regulations has three compliance categories. The first one, cleaner fossil fuels called compliance category one, generally include upstream emission reductions that happen along the fossil fuel supply chain. It's driven by a protocol process that are called quantification methodologies to determine how the reductions are calculated. 
and the different requirements for uh, verification of those reductions. So it's not through an LCA model that the compliance category one um, credits are created, it's through a QM process. Biofuels and synthetic fuels, compliance category two, those are called low carbon intensity fuels, LCIFs. They're defined in the regulation as having 10% less life cycle GHG reductions than the base case fuel. And the base case fuel is, for the purposes of the CFR, um, a blended number that is the same for gasoline and diesel fuel, which are the two fuels included under the regulation. So the LCFSs in California, Oregon, British Columbia, they include gasoline and diesel. The CFR in its inception and over the six years of its development through to publication of final regulations was going to include liquid, gaseous, and solid fuels. As it got towards final regulations, gaseous fuels was dropped off along with uh, solid fuels. Aviation fuels, which were initially going to be included, were dropped off. So it's basically a gasoline and diesel focused reg. However, there is the ability to create low carbon fuel credits or compliance credits through um, lower carbon gaseous um, fuels introduced into Canada or imported into Canada. So some of the flexibilities are retained from the broader inclusion of fuel types in the CFR. But generally, um, LCIFs are 10% below, and these are the ones that go into um, displacing gasoline and diesel. However, low carbon fuels into aviation and marine uh, also count. Compliance category three, fuel switching electric vehicles and gaseous transport. So this is where EVs um, have a, and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles have a clear path to creating uh, compliance credits. These are the, the boxes at the bottom. The eight of them are uh, quick hits on key components of the CFR. So the one that is struck out is export credits on crude and refined product. So what this relates to is that in the initial versions of the CFR, up until final publication, there was the opportunity to create compliance category one credits. So CCS is the, the good um, example of that project type. You were allowed to create compliance category one credits that related to energy, so crude um, refined products that related later exported from Canada. This was removed from eligibility between um, draft regulations in Canada Gazette One and the final regulations in June of this year. Import credits, so crude refined biofuels, um, that is the when those are imported into Canada, they can create um, emission reduction. So if there is CCS, for example, that occurs outside of Canada and that energy is imported into Canada, that those credits can be uh, counted in the compliance approach of an obligated party. There's a compliance fund that you can use up to 10% of your obligation. Gaseous fuels, so if you put in low, lower carbon gaseous fuels, you can use that up to 10%. That's one of those remaining flexibilities that has gone through the CFR's development process. The rules for the quantification methodologies exist outside of the regulation, which means that changes to the QM can happen much faster than changes to the regulation.
The one with the asterisk by it is double counted biofuel volumes in 2022. This relates to the transition between the renewable fuel regulation and the CFR. So during from now, from the date of the publication of the regulations in June through to the end of 2022, there's a period of double counting where volumes placed into the market that create RF renewable fuel regulation compliance they turn into CFR credits um, when they're in the account of an obligated party. And they do that at a specified carbon intensity value that's, um, that's listed in the regulation. But those volumes also become CFR credits later using the actual carbon intensity of the fuel pathway that created those low carbon fuels. So you actually, so you get a template CI plus your actual CI and those credits stack. So um, we understand there's very good awareness of that. And we're seeing some increase in volume seeking to land in the Canadian market before the end of this renewable fuel requirement compliance year to take advantage of that. And this also helps the, uh, the CFR start with a bit of a long credit market, which um, certainly is useful from the viewpoint of obligated parties, but for a CFR credit price being a, a, a strong driver of value for low carbon intensity fuels, of course, a tighter credit market um, would be preferable. And the right answer is probably somewhere between, between those. A key part of the CFR that um, folks in Canada and outside of Canada um, realize is that it sits on top of strong provincial regulations that are in place in provinces that use 95% of the fossil fuels that are that are combusted. So um, that's just a quick description of a very big and complex elephant. Um, I hope that I've given you um, a bit of understanding of the different, different various parts and honed in on some of the key pieces that relate to timelines on CIs, reporting, and verification. Thanks so much, Fred. Thank you so much for that uh, presentation. Uh, we do have time for some questions. Um, we do have a few that have been submitted to me. And I think the question, um, and they're kind of like a bunch of similar <laughs> questions. Um, and they all seem to relate to the impact on um, both the program and low carbon fuel development of the U.S.'s recently enacted IRA, which is causing quite a stir beyond just electric vehicles, I might add, <laughs> um, around um, the world. And I wondered if you, um, on behalf of these questioners, had any comments about that. Is this going to, for example, is it going to pull feedstock out of the Canadian market and into the U.S.? Is it going to impact uh, plant uh, development um, on the low carbon advanced biofuel side. Are there are there other impacts that you're looking at? Will it will it ultimately impact potentially the effectiveness of, of this program at least for for low carbon fuels? That's the what is that the sixty four million dollar question? <laughs> oh, much bigger, much much. <laughs> Much bigger than that, yeah. Um, so IRA is well, I'm going with elephants as a motif in, in my presentation. So that's definitely the elephant in the room. I'll say from the Canadian side, the government is extremely aware of the impacts um, of the IRA, 
especially 45Z on clean fuel production economics. So the shift of that from a blender's tax credit to an exportable producer's tax credit is, is very well known. There's some uncertainty on the emission rates and the related credit values that that would be in place for different types of clean fuels in the US, you know, up to the dollar based on what your ER is. So government is quite aware on the Canadian side and planning to respond to it in some fashion. We heard that in the fall economic statement, the, the mini budget that's, um, that's released each fall. Um, and it all points to something in budget 2023 that responds to the Inflation Reduction Act. Canada has a different set of tools to let it respond to it. I mean, there's there's carbon pricing, there's the concept of contracts for differences, there's production credits, there's different funding programs that are in place that assist on the capital side. So it's really about pulling things together so that there is cross-border competitiveness for projects that seek to establish establish in Canada. So that's a long way of saying that there is an expected response. Um, will it impact where projects locate and project ec economics? Absolutely. Um, if there's access to an exportable tax credit in the US that can come to Canada unopposed, and that of course will change economics. Um, as it relates to the CFR, the CFR is a big demand signal for low carbon fuels. So Fuels produced in the US will obviously be used under the CFR. I mean, that's currently the case now. Canada is just now standing up renewable diesel projects, but we use a lot of renewable diesel. It's all coming from, from the US and abroad. So even if fuels are produced in the US, even if they're produced in the US from Canadian feedstock, they still have to have all of the pieces in place to enable CFR compliance. So registered CIs, compliant feedstock um, that meets the LUB criteria going into their plants in the US and then being exported to Canada. So CFR creates a firm demand signal. It is really up to finance um, and related ministries to create those, those competitive conditions. A key theme that's running through this is, it's not just Canada needs to respond to the IRA because we need um, equivalent business conditions. I mean, the I think the real rallying cry is energy security, clean energy security. And that's very amplified with geopolitics at this moment. Um, it, of course, is an opportunity for Canada to, to keep the projects that have announced, and there's many more that have not yet announced and have actually announced and have steel in the ground, keep them on track towards, towards building so that these fuels are produced and consumed in Canada because we are not, um, a, we're not a net refined fossil fuel exporter. We're a net refined importer. We're a net clean fuel importer. So getting production assets in Canada is certainly understood to be an aim of, of the current government. So to be determined, very important. Um, would certainly like to know how Treasury is going to do the the emission rates um, and related credit values, especially for the SAF that um, that happens in how many days, Tammy? Um, maybe forty five <laughs> days until we're supposed to know what emission rates are. So exactly, um, yes, yeah. So for, for TBD, yeah, for LCA modelers. I mean, having LCAs and CIs and ERs in the middle of tax code is is certainly exciting. Um, yeah. Add some complexity <laughs> with it too. Well, it's the U.S. after all. 
<laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> so um, there is a question in the chat, and then I have another question if we have time in these last few minutes. Uh, the question is, where will the CFR credits be traded and what level of price discovery will be possible? Who care to venture, I guess. Very, very good question. Um, because the regulations are not definitive on this. Um, C staff are not to date definitive on this. There's been reference that in terms of reporting for understanding what the credit values would be, there would be something similar to what British Columbia publishes. They, they publish quarterly the number of transactions, the, the mean value of those transactions per credit, the volume, et cetera. So there would be some type of reporting. I think like that, this is my estimate. Um, we don't understand ECCC to, to be, be developing a trading platform um, that they would manage and oversee. So they would be um, business to business, or there would be an opportunity for there to be some type of um, third party assistance with facilitating those trades. But price discovery um, and where the debit creation sits relative to credit creation is what's going to drive value in this market and understanding and, and business planning. And that's one aspect that is not yet as clear as um, market participants would like it to be. But um, we've reiterated that one of the key points that the CFR does is create compliance values. Very important that those values are, are understood. And there is there are some handles that ECCC um, must follow, or there's, I'll go into quick detail here. Mm -hmm. um, EV charging network operators are required to reinvest the value from compliance credits back into more EV enabling infrastructure. So there will be some type of fair market value of credits published by the Environment and Climate Change Canada that is used to determine how many funds need to be reinvested. So there, there is going to be the information. Um, we're just not clear exactly how, where, when it's going to be published. There are forecasts out there. Um, you know, I think some of our math uses $100 per ton now because that's simply um, what the Tidewater refinery has had out in press releases around forward credit sales, but that's one of the few um, publicly mentioned values of what future CFR credits will be. And, and certainly that's, that's just an estimate. So last question, quick question. Um, you talked about uh, SAF uh, all throughout the, the presentation. Do you see Canada going the way of the European Union and considering an actual mandate at some point in the future? I'm, I'm bullish on a SAF mandate. In, at the provincial levels in multiple provinces and, and at the federal level for the reason that it's clear that a, an opt-in only approach um, may not yield the amount of SAF that is required to make any meaningful reduction um, in, in aviation GHG emissions. So volumetric requirements certainly would be something, a necessary policy tool rather than just opt-in or even a CI reduction on aviation. You could get cheaper reductions in the on-road transportation fuel than you can with SAF. So regulator understanding and policymaker understanding, I think is part of that. Second, 
British Columbia has consulted on exactly that question. They have indicated they want to do something on jet fuel within the LCFS. Um, so provinces and leading provinces are actually doing something. Um, and third, I would think that the aviation community with um, the targets for the, you know, the SAF Grand Challenge of the 3 billion gallons per year um, in, in 2030, um, this is the way the commercial aviation sector has indicated they, they want to go. So having lower level volumetric requirements serves to further that goal if it is the surety created through those low through those volume obligations that actually turn on production capacity. What Do about I, marine? Um, and I'll just say one, one more yeah, thing yeah. on aviation. Like oh, I fine. know one of the key parts about the, um, the European approach is, um, I mean, what they're consulting on or considering is an airport specific mm -hmm. requirement. Not sure that um, Canada would go to that airport specific requirement. We've generally used a pool average approach. So um, maybe something between um, Europe and and what a what a renewable volume obligation actually looks like. Last last of the final final question, Mark, because I know we're just a smidge over time. But I think as what you're saying applies to to SAF, could it apply to marine? As as in, you know, the Europeans are are doing um, uh, planning a mandate for. Uh, for marine, what about uh, the Canadians on the, the same philosophy that opt-ins not really enough to really encourage decarbonization of transport energies in that sector? Yeah, and um, marine's a bit of a bigger one. I mean, having the opt-in is certainly a big deal because you can put a lot of low-carbon marine fuels in a vessel and create a lot of compliance value for that. So questions like, okay, so LNG into an LNG vessel, how many compliance create credits may that create? Um, where are those emission reductions going to be calculated and what does that do to the rest of the credit market? So I think there's bigger questions on marine that relate to just the multiple types of fuels that can be used under it. With SAF, we're talking about a single ASTM spec. With marine, um, we've right. got methanol, we've got ammonia, we've got exactly. hydrogen, we've yeah. got everything. So, but um, global marine has, um, you know, MARPOL and IMO targets to reduce their emissions. Um, policies like the CFR can be part of um, how domestic or member state level policies are used to further that in. Um, I'll just note, ABFC is quite engaged on both of these. Um, we have a SAF caucus of our members that are specifically focused on providing policy input to SAF-related um, initiatives and policies, federally and prov. Um, same with Marine. We have a Marine caucus that's being st stood up, uh, approved by our board of directors to do exactly the same thing. And recognizing Marine is different in its understanding of the de decarbonization journey, simply because there's many types of engines, many types of fuels, many types of ships. Fred, I want to thank you so much again for your time um, and for uh, presenting today and for collaborating with me on this. It's much, much appreciated. You got it. See you soon, Tammy. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.